millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365. No one said it would be easy. Football is damned if it does, damned if it doesn't. Yet we've reached the point where far-reaching decisions have to be made. Will the clubs think the unthinkable? Declare this season null and void? Or even scrap next season altogether? They're two nuclear options, but not beyond the realms of possibility. Now, in the long term, I can see huge changes driven by fear, money and expedience. What about you, Aid? Oh, it's scary, isn't it, Mike? I can't disagree. I think that there are definitely possibilities. We've seen already, haven't we, in France that they've effectively null and voided. Well, they didn't null and void it. They've awarded champions and, and relegated teams, which actually I really disagree with because... There are huge ramifications for those teams, particularly those that got relegated. But looking at the long term of English football, the pyramid is shaking. No doubt about that. I, I think the, the English football pyramid, the 92 clubs, is, is is something to be proud of here in the UK. I think it's worked wonderfully well down the years. But what this crisis seems to have highlighted is that they're not all together. That basically... It's every man for himself, isn't it? And it feels as if those at the bottom of the food chain are being left to their own devices to fight for survival. And those at the top are are worried about protecting their own interests. And what you're saying, I guess, is that in the long term, will that that lead to the breakup of the 92 and, I don't know, Premier League 1 and 2, potentially? Might be the case. It might be. It's one of those where... If this is as bad as we fear, and let's all hope it isn't, it could be a case of what are we left with in terms of football clubs around the country? Who who has survived and how do we reconfigure the divisions? It might be a case of Premier League 1 and 2. I know, I know that the big championship clubs would love that and those that yo-yo between the Premier League and the Championship. Until now, no one else has really seemed that interested. But the landscape has changed that much. I wouldn't write it off. Yeah, there is a sense, isn't there, Seb, that football is almost at war with itself and it's splintered into pretty predictable lines. The very rich, some would say the obscenely rich, against the reasonably rich. Now, we're talking about neutral grounds. There's a lot of toing and froing about that. We're told that there might be up to eight rebels on that. Now, there's now talk that almost you know, without people saying it, they'll be bought off with a no-relegation clause. But that'll cause chaos as well, won't it? Well, I'd have thought so, Mike. I mean, I I don't really understand that. It's almost as if football wants its cake and to eat it too, because if you're willing to take relegation off the table, then why are we playing in the first place? Is it literally just for the case of, just for the sake of playing a couple of rounds of games, awarding Liverpool the title, and then... What else is this great exercise in aid of? Because if there's no relegation, and I look, I, I take the point that to be relegated under those circumstances would be harsh, but I don't really buy the idea of a, a loss of integrity because, well, how, how much integrity does the Premier League have in the first place? It's a competition dominated by money, by clubs who can afford to pay players 
the most decadent wages versus teams who are trying to survive on a much smaller budget. So is there a sporting balance there at the moment? No, not really. So I don't, if, if, if we're taking, if we're taking relegation off the table and we accept that as an argument, doesn't that defeat the purpose? I mean, I, I don't understand that. I mean, perhaps you guys you take Champions League qualification off the table as well. well I mean, it's exactly it's, that. It's the same yes. difference, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes, I, yes. I, I agree. I think it is the same for everybody. It's imperfect. We know that. But if needs must, and, and we're led to believe that the finances are, are, are the big the big factor here, if needs must and you have to get it done, then then it's not going to be perfect whichever way you do it. I still don't understand the neutral venues. I, I know that I keep banging on about this. Why eight to ten grounds? I mean, surely teams will be bust in and out of the stadiums. Everyone that go into the game will be will be allowed into the cordon. You can cordon off stadiums in in city centres. You can easily do it at certain other grounds, of course. People will be bust in, bust out inside stadiums. Will be probably the most the, the the cleanest environment you could ever wish for. I do not understand why why every Premier League ground can't can't still be used that, that that really is is continuing i haven't read a, a logical explanation on that to be perfectly honest and that is that is at the root cause of this because i, I understand why the, the the relegation threatened sides will will use that to their advantage to say hang on this isn't fair you can't send us down in this scenario they're using that let's make hey, no bones you, about it I, I had a little thought about this last night i i was thinking it sounds an awful lot to me as if Teams who are pointing out this integrity issue are kind of laying the foundations for mm. some kind of challenge in the future. Mm. It's a sort of it's a situation where should Team X go down or should they miss out on Champions League, Europa League qualification? It's a landmark to reference back to to say, look, we told you this is our grievance then, and it's a it becomes this it becomes even more complicated than it is now. And it just feels as if you know because the party line throughout this process has been well, health is the most important thing. And then beyond that, football was presented as, as a financial necessity or a, uh, or a means of lifting the, the nation's morale. And so we're going through, to, we're almost going back to the point where we're arguing about football minutiae. We're a stage away from saying, yeah, well, I don't like what, what the, the, the kit that the referee's wearing and I don't want to play with that ball and it should be a, a Nike ball rather than an Adidas one, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's as if we're, we're really getting away from the, the idea that, yes, health is what matters here. Which I I have a bit of a problem with, Mike. But very quickly, I, I have to say though, a twenty-two team Premier League, which the big boys will hate, obviously for other reasons because of their other commitments, that would be quite exciting with five essentially going down at the end of next season. As a one-off spectacle, it might it might be quite fun. But, but yeah, but yeah. you just carry that argument to its logical conclusion. Then, Aid, mm. if you do that, it means that you've got, as you just said, five coming down the following season. Now, that is five clubs coming down with the unfair advantage of parachute payments. So, you, you know, we talk about integrity really loosely. That will make the whole situation even more distorted than it already is. Which is why they don't want it. Yeah, it's true. Um... So, so what I'm saying is, if we're going to look at the big picture and let's do a bit of blue sky thinking and all those beanbag type of ideas that people have, why don't we say scrap parachute payments or if we're conscious about trying to look after the all-round health of English football repackage those payments from the Premier League into more solidarity money for the lower league clubs because they're the ones who are going to need it well you won't you won't catch me disagreeing with that I, I, I don't think enough has been done to to protect the lower league clubs I know that that I read the the piece with Steve Parrish. I thought it was a really, really good piece that he wrote and I understood where he was coming from. But, you know, one of the sign-off bits at the end was we prop up lower league football, the Premier League. Now, I still think it's a drop in the ocean, the, the money that, that filters down. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see some of that parachute money, most of it, in fact, spread around rather than just given to those clubs to then dominate in the championship that would be the right kind of gesture i think moving forward and, and, to, and to level that playing field but yeah it's i don't know i i still go back to the point i've been making throughout many of these shows during the lockdown the efl needs support from above and and 
And you talk about scrapping next season. It won't happen in the Premier League, right? Because there's so much money at stake and it just can't happen. I can't envisage it. But I can envisage the EFL. I can envisage League One and League Two not having a campaign next year because of no revenue, no fans in the grounds, no revenue. How can they function? And not not without support, they can't. So, I mean, it's a notion at the moment, it's a pie-in-the-sky theory, but I think in EFL terms, and for those hundreds of footballers and the millions of fans who support EFL clubs, I would be really nervous right now that, that next season might not happen. Yeah, And then we're talking about... We're not talking about airy-fairy theories there, are we? We're talking about what football actually is, and that's an expression of community pride. It's an ideal that we've been wedded to for you know 150 years. Are people, do you think, Seb, fully cognizant of the fact that we are talking about fundamental issues here, that this game will not be the same again if people make the wrong decision at what is going to be the wrong time. I think one of the problems with football, one of the issues with the likely effects on the Football League, non-league teams, is that the Premier League has dominated this discussion from the beginning. The Quite naturally, because of how newsworthy it is, the reporting of it has focused on the weird and wonderful ideas and the way in which the, the Premier League is going to be able to contort itself to collect its television revenue. And underneath that surface layer, you have all these clubs that the revenue has completely disappeared. So whereas a Premier League, a inverted commas Premier League could exist in a crowdless, supporterless environment, which would be weird and sterile and very, very strange to watch, the way that the Football League functions and the non-league functions and how dependent it is on people, I don't think that's that's really been enough of a part of the conversation or it's been a sort of, well, you know, we'll worry about the Premier League first and then we'll hope that somehow... There's some sort of trickle-down benevolence which allows the rest of the pyramid to function. It's 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 bizarre. I, I live down in Bath and I've obviously been watching how my, my local club, Bath City, has been dealing with the issues and there is no mechanism by which they protect themselves. And I don't feel as if that's really enough of the part of the conversation. It's, it's a, if you're not a, a fan of a Premier League club, how do you expect to be spending your Saturdays for the next 18 months, two years? It's as if that hasn't quite hit home yet. And I understand why people would be in denial about that because it's a pretty bleak situation. But at the same time, it's a necessary one because this is a this is a fundamental life, well, pastime-changing, life-changing, however you want to describe it. This is a, it, it, it is that level of severity in this situation. Yeah. I suppose also, Aid, is anyone thinking about the players here? Because they don't seem to have had a voice within these discussions or if it's there it's very very faint now maybe that's again you know a a, a factor in terms of the pfa's impotence yeah but but let's look at that you've been a player you're a family man would you play under current circumstances Uh, i wouldn't I wouldn't be fancying going to going to training at the moment or, or or particularly the June start. I think it's you're still seeing hundreds of people dying on the news every day. I think it, it, it still feels too rushed. But what I'll go back to the point I made a week or two ago. Soon this lockdown will be eased, and in our general lives there'll be a num- there'll be a number of you know calculated risks that you take. You we're going to have to get on with life albeit differently and, you know, to be careful, but we're going to have to put ourselves at risk until a vaccine becomes available potentially. And I think the same applies to footballers. And and let's be honest, inside a football stadium that's, that has no, no other people that where everyone seems, it appears, will have been tested, like, there might not be a safer place. It's probably it's going to be more dangerous going to the local t- supermarket or the, or the corner shop than playing a Premier League game. So I think players will, will get behind it. It's just the contract situation is a worry. I think players are currently voting those players out of contract. Will you play on effectively for no money, knowing that you'll be released at the end of your contract? That's a big, big thing. I, I was also thinking about the EFL, Mike, and and the concept, and, and I'm worried about no revenue, meaning no, no EFL football. I'm thinking for one season only, would 
players in the Championship, League One and League Two almost play for a set wage, a living wage, something that's that's decent, but for many would be way, way below what's in the terms of their contract just to keep it going. I mean, I don't know whether that's an outlandish outlandish thought or not. Yeah, but are we are we getting to a situation there, Aid, where, you know, in football's great scheme of things, the rich are going to get richer or they're not going to lose any money and the poor are going to get poorer. Well, they in are those, losing in money. Everyone's, everyone's losing money. I don't think there's any winners. But I'm just, I'm just putting that out there, like a, a sort of living wage. I don't know. It's capped at 1000 a week, 2000 I don't know what. Maybe subsidised by the government, clubs dig deep, you know, uh, online viewing figures, not viewing figures, subscriptions to watch the games online can provide a, a, a pot by which they can pay the players and keep the thing going. But look, players will be earning substantially less for one season only. I don't know. Is that a possibility? Guys, yeah. do you find it well, strange? I suppose... like, I, sorry, Mike, I, I was just going to jump yeah. in because Adrian's touched on something that has occurred to me over the last few days. Do you find it strange how little agency the players at every level have been given in this discussion? Because forget for the, for the minute, forget the, the health implications and the potential danger to family and elderly relatives and that kind of thing. But you would have thought that any route forward, any strategic planning has to begin with players, surely, because they are the commodity in the game. Is that am I am I getting the wrong end of the stick here? Because it just it just it seems as if we're creating situations at every level of the game where there is a macro initiative dreamed up by old men in boardrooms and then the players are just going to have to deal with whatever happens from that point on. The players are the game. We we, we pay you. You'll do what we say. Is it, that that would be the attitude. That's for, exactly that's part. exactly my my fear. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think that's how the players feel, and I don't think that they like it. But ultimately, think, they, Seb, they want to play, don't they? Uh, sorry, I do. Do you think, Seb, that that wage caps or salary caps are now going to be inevitable? Certainly outside the Premier League. You know, I'm hearing sums of something like £15,000 a week being max now in the championship. Is that sort of compromise even possible, do you think? I, I don't... Possible is a different question. I don't know. I would certainly say that it's the kind of initiative that has to come from on high. It has to become Football League legislation because you can't trust clubs to act in the collective interest without without that sort of control. I think it's imperative for the future of the Football League. Yes, absolutely. Because I think in any situation like this, the first step has got to be what can we do to reduce costs? What can we do to burn away anything that isn't fundamental to the game's longevity? And wage caps are right at the top of that list. Mm. Yeah. Now, I think it's set, set at a pretty good level, isn't it? I mean, it's still, a, it's still a, an amazing wage to take home for a player applying their trade outside of the Premier League. My, my worry on it, Mike, is... Because of the the size of the carrot dangled in front of championship clubs, where they they'll find ways to to bend the rules and and circumnavigate things with bonuses with with crazy bonuses and whatnot. It'd have to be policed very very carefully. And my other issue is is that it wouldn't affect Luton Town at all because they've got no no player anywhere near that. But a Fulham, it would it would decimate their squad. And and is that fair? Should we consider? The size of the, of the clubs and the revenue that that they can generate. I don't know. It's um, but I agree with Seb. I think for the sustainability of of EFL football, wage caps have to come in definitely in League One and League Two. Isn't this uh, at, at a certain point? Doesn't this become an ideological question? So, what we're saying really is: Are we happy in the future with prohibiting clubs from being able to spend and buy their way out of certain levels of the game? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I understand that in the short term, Aid's quite right. It would inhibit some teams. It would create a disadvantage for them. But is the principle okay by me? Absolutely. It's what I'd want football yeah. to be. It would, it would create a talent a talent void. I think the, the very best players that we see in the championship now that can command bigger money would, would without doubt, either go and sit in... A bloated Premier League squad not playing or, or go abroad. That's that's the only problem. Then you've got a weaker championship and that disparity that we've been talking about earlier on in the show, whereby clubs, you know, clubs that come up fighting against it. I think that gap between the Premier League and the championship will, will just be almost too big for, for those promoted to, to cope. Do you understand? So, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, there's an issue there. 
You, you mentioned you know, players going abroad, <laughs> if only with that simple at the moment. Yeah, but, true, true. <laughs> um, I suppose that does point up the question, maybe to you, Seb. What do you think is the future in the the short term, anyway, for the Champions League, Europa League, with mass international travel presumably limited? You know, we've got Spain saying no tourists until mm-hmm. October, I think. It's unworkable. You see, when we when we talk about the contingency or whether we should be cancelling next season, I would start that process with European competition. I would say, right, well, we're going to have a year away from the Champions League, the Europa League. We're going to push back our, our plans for the Europa Conference League, which is due to begin in 2021. Because one of the great problems, one of the accentuating issues within this situation has been the congestion within the calendar. We haven't been able to say right, well, we're going to finish this season and we're just going to push everything else back until whenever it can take place because there are too many stakeholders in the game. There are too many tournaments. There are too many competitions. There aren't these windows where you can just say, right, well, we're going to freeze everything until it's safe to continue again. And one of the most bizarre aspects of the saga has been these artificial deadlines which have come down. These, well, we're going to, we're going to be doing the Champions League final in August. No, you're not. You're definitely not. I mean, we can we can keep saying that and we can we can present it as fact, but there is no such thing as fact in the sporting world at the moment. So yeah, I I, I don't see it happening just because the revenue streams are too great, the TV audience is too big. But they, it is more important that domestic leagues are given the latitude to survive than it is to stage another Champions League competition. And so I would be asking, yeah, I, I would be asking. The, the Continental Cup competitions to be bearing the brunt of this for the time being. I think that's absolutely appropriate. But that that's never going to happen, is it? You know, that's the difference between idealism and realism. You know, I I love the Champions League, especially. I think it's a you know a, an entirely exalted level of the game at club level, and there has you know it, it is the money pot. The bigger clubs, top six in the Premier League, if you gave them the option between sustaining the Premier League and scrapping or or temporarily suspending the Champions League, they would go for Europe, we'd have a European Super League within an instant, and the game again would change. That's the problem with all this. It's almost like the law of unintended circumstances, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Consequences. You're, you're right, you're right. Absolutely, that scenario could easily unfold. And, and UEFA... They think they're more important than the Premier League. The Premier League thinks they're more important than UEFA and FIFA think they're more important than everybody else. So so it's it's going to be one big squad where no one's going to want to back down. I actually agree. I think the most palatable absentee from next season would be every cup competition. I don't think football fans would would like it, but I think that they could accept all cup competitions scrapped for one year so that we can just get our house in order domestically to get the leagues up and running, to get the clubs onto a level playing field again. And then we can pick things up. I even think for this season, everyone left in the Europa League and Champions League, I think they'd take it on the chin if if they decided, look, there's, there's just no room for it. We're, we're going to knock it on the head. That, that That's how I see it. Same with the FA Cup. Don't want to, but but I think that that, that is the, the one thing I... I personally would be okay losing. Yeah. Well, you know, the mushroom cloud spreading, isn't it, Seb? <laughs> I suppose if you look at, you know, other ramifications, the FA have been talking this morning about essentially budgeting for a shortfall of £75 million over each of the next three years. Do you think Wembley and selling Wembley should be back on the agenda to get the FA some funds? Well, with those figures, absolutely. My fear is that this shortfall becomes part of the argument for why we can't defer something like the FA Cup because of the sponsorship revenue. But I don't see what other asset the FA has to to combat this problem. I don't see the alternative. I'm surprised that Wembley wasn't sold originally. I I, I still don't fully understand why that didn't happen. But I yeah, I, I can't I can't make an argument against that, Mike. Uh, Will they get a good deal? I mean, in the current climate. Well, probably not in this climate. No, probably not. And it's probably an opportunist market. But at the same time, that's the situation. If if these figures are to believe, that's the situation they're they're in. Yeah, on the FA Cup, by the way, I mean, it starts in July. 
or August. I mean, you can't see that happening right now, can you? I mean, maybe. I mean, how many non-league clubs are going to be in a position to, to put out teams in the summer? So the FA Cup for next season has to be considered a, a serious doubt at the moment, sadly. Well, let's have a gear change and actually talk about football that did happen. Our tournament focus. Seb, you've, you've chosen South Africa 2010. Why was that? I wanted to talk about England, Mike. One of the problems that I had with the English national team for most of from the 90s and the, you know, the first decade of the new millennium was this dependence it had on the hero manager, in inverted commas, that, that, that concept that if we could only appoint the right guy, then that would make everything better and it would eradicate years and years of neglect of grassroots, of a failure to notice what other countries were doing in, in production, in technical development, in oversight analysis, the whole whole works. This sort of this this prevailing belief that if we could just offer Fabio Capello a big enough contract, that would make everything all right. Now, to me, I know that English football didn't default into a better place immediately after elimination from South Africa. But I think that it was, it became, it served the, the the collective good because the disconnect between what Capello wanted and what he had was so great that the argument couldn't exist anymore. It was untenable. It had to be, there had to be reform. And I think also, I for many people, I think the, the lasting image of England's effort in South Africa was... Meza Ozil running away from our midfield, from Gareth Barry and John Terry and, and that performance. Yes, I know it's caveated by Lampard's non-goal, but let's be honest, it was a disaster in every technical way imaginable. And I think over the last 10 years, I know it's been gradual. I know there's also been some trial and error and a, you know, a huge Sam Allardyce anomaly involved in there at, at the same time. We've kind of blundered our way into a good situation. I don't think that should be ignored. But I, I think you can track the, that change and those developments from South Africa because England were that bad. Mm. I know they had a bad time in Brazil, but I still feel as if what they were doing in Brazil and the reasons why they were they were unsuccessful were less reprehensible than they had been four years previously, if that makes sense. Yeah, so co- Covering England in the World Cup involves basically entering a bubble. Yeah. And that bubble quite regularly wasn't a very pleasant place to be you come in so for instance I did the the opening game South Africa's draw with Mexico and basically it was yes welcome to Africa's World Cup okay we had the Vuvuzelas which basically drove everyone mental after about (laughs) five minutes but the joy around that game was profound you know Bafana Bafana probably didn't reach the entire nation because of economic circumstances and everything else. But they they certainly rallied the nation. They went out with dignity and then, then basically South Africans rallied behind Ghana instead. And that was a wonderful experience, that first game. Literally the next day to go back and you've got Robert Green's error against the US, you've got Capello blundering around, it, it, it's it, and he's still doing it, isn't he? He's now talking about calamity, James, and upsetting David James. The whole atmosphere around England was so sour, and it was probably embodied by that wretched game, absolutely desperate match against Algeria in Cape Town. Fantastic stadium, by the way. You know, Greenpoint, wonderful place. But that game was appalling and we had Wayne Rooney and the incident with the, the cameraman. And it was basically, they were these guys, England, at that tournament, were on a different planet and it wasn't a very nice place to be. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, yeah, it was, it was, they weren't happy, were they? they? They weren't enjoying themselves. It wasn't a, a pleasant experience. Capella had a, had a nightmare, really, in that tournament. The team, team was in balance, wasn't it? I do think that it was quite a weak England squad when you compare it with with what we have available at the moment. But yeah, England were poor. We weren't the only ones, were we? France went out in the first round of Italy as well. Didn't I didn't think either won a game actually. So it was one of those tournaments where where the stars, the big guns, never really got going. I mean, I look back on it because I knew we were going to be talking about it, and 
uh, I thought, who was the star of the tournament? Who, who was the one that sort of, uh, you know, took the ball by the horns? And the golden ball winner was Diego Forlan of Uruguay. And I think that tells tells its own story, doesn't it, about how the how the superstars didn't really didn't really come to the party. I think Spain's did clearly. It was pretty a bit peak tiki taka, wasn't it, Seb? I mean, Xavi and Iniesta. Kind of doing their doing their things. They they they, they were superb, weren't they? It, without a proper goal scorer at the top, they were still way too good. And I, I have to say, the other thing that stands out from that tournament for me was the ball, which which came in for even more flack than the England. Jabulani. Yeah, yeah, the Jabulani. Yeah. I mean, it was hated, wasn't it? More than more than Capello and his players. I think they said that there was there was hardly any long range goals because because of the the, the ball. But that ball has since become. One of the most in-demand balls you can find on eBay anywhere in the world because <laughs> foot golf players love it. Foot golf players, <laughs> foot golf players will pay upwards of three, four hundred pounds to get their hands on an original Javelani. I'm not lying. It's, Why is that? Why is that? It's just it's the way it travels through the air. You can get great distance. You can get great distance on your T-shirt for it, and I know this because I know this because um, a good friend of mine is is sort of on the tour, shall we speak? It's, you know, it's, it's not, it's barely semi-pro, but there is a tour, and uh, prize money is up for grabs and whatnot. And you get you get UK number one, UK rankings, world rankings, etc. So people take this seriously, and, and if you get your hands on a Jabalani. And you're decent, then you've got a chance, apparently. So there you go. One good thing to come out of the Jabulani. Is that a new career for you, Aid? <laughs> I tried it. I'm, I'm quite good around the greens, but because my legs are now weak, <laughs> because I haven't kicked a ball for ages, <laughs> when I take a t shot, I pr- pretty much pull a muscle. So um, I don't think it's for me. <laughs> Oh, God. So from one great footballing legend to another, that's that Spanish team, Iniesta. He's one of my favourite players. What about you, Seb? Oh, without question, it's one of my regrets that he didn't win the Ballon d'Or. I think watching him play and the way he used to move around the pitch, he used to glide, he used to receive the ball. Do you remember, do you remember early computer games when you used to pass to a player and the graphic just used to absorb the ball? It just used to become part of their body form. That was like watching Andres Iniesta. Just so smooth and so slick. And and also the way that he, he processed the game. I know that Javi Hernandez is, is rightly celebrated for his vision on the ball. But if you think about the average position where Iniesta received possession and the amount of defenders that were around him whenever he did so, and you see that in the 2010 World Cup, his footballing IQ, I suppose that's the way to, to express it. It's just remarkable. I'd urge anyone who, for a little insight into the experience of playing against him, dig out an interview with Michael Carrick when he's talking about the second Champions League final that they lost to Barcelona, the 3-1 at Wembley. And listen to what he says about the experience of sort of trying to nullify an Iniesta. It's so descriptive of the level that he existed on within the game. It's amazing. Mm. On that, very quickly, the I, I think the great midfielders that we always laud and love, you know, for years and years after they've retired, are the ones that... They're graceful on the ball, but they can also so they can hurt you with a pass. But they can also hurt you by taking the ball past you. Special players like like the Gazers. We talked about Gazza, didn't we, on a on a recent podcast? The young players we love, the young Billy Gilmore, Jack Wilshire when he came through, guys that can pass beautifully, but also can travel with it gracefully and at speed. And and Iniesta had all that. He was oh, it's just a treat, wasn't he, to watch? Loved him. Yeah. I want to introduce a, a new feature, really. You know, what's the game that you can't bear to watch again and why? I suppose, actually, actually, if we're talking about 2010, that Algeria game is right up there. <laughs> it shouldn't be down there. But I'm going to go and I'll kick it off with the 1984 FA Cup final. That was the first final that I covered for the Daily Telegraph. It was my boyhood team, Watford, who were beaten 2-0 by a very, very good Everton team who probably weren't allowed to flourish because of events subsequent to Heisel. It's funny how, as a kid, you just look at Wembley, especially when you're supporting a you know a lower division team, and you just think, well, you know, that is Nirvana. I'm never going to get there. 
that was Watford's first FA Cup final. I was in a sort of a, a, a transitional phase as a journo. It was the match that I actually envied my brothers and my mates from the council estate, their, their innocence. You know, they had the full face paint on. They were down the pub. We had a, an estate pub called The Highwayman, which was basically Fort Apache. Um, <laughs> that was great. It was the only game that my mum ever watched. I got her a ticket next to the Royal Box, and she sat next to Freddie Starr, the comedian. And <laughs> basically, she didn't, she didn't even know who won, but that made her day. And then you had, obviously, Elton John's tears in the Royal Box. And Watford, essentially, the decisive goal was a mugging. Andy Gray mugged Steve Sherwood, the goalkeeper. Now, you know, I've got to know Andy fairly well, and he's a nice bloke, but on that day, I would have quite happily killed him. Um, <laughs> so that's why I just, all those things coming to bear, because after that, you know, because my career was, was developing, I moved away from my boyhood club, you know, both geographically and also ideologically and philosophically. So that was the sort of almost like the end of beginning of the end of innocence there. I taped that game on a DVD. I've still got it at home, a three-hour DVD, including the pre-match and post-match stuff. I cannot watch it. It's, it's gathered dust over, you know, however many years. And I remember remarking to Graham Taylor, quite lighthearted, I said, I'm blaming you for this. I cannot watch that. I just cannot watch it. And he turned around to me and said, funnily enough, neither can I. Mm. And so if Graham couldn't watch his own team again, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, what about you? What are you, Aid? What, what's your horror show well, that you don't want to I go mean, back there's, to? there's a lot. <laughs> we, could, we could probably keep this running, running for weeks and weeks and weeks, this feature. When you brought it up yesterday, uh, the, the one game's just totally sprung into my mind and I have no desire to watch it. It's England 1, Iceland 2. I say that for a number of reasons. Obviously, it was, it was so embarrassing to be English that particular night. I was booked and I, I was sort of, throughout that competition, I was doing some work for a restaurant chain and I was sort of at the front of the room interviewing a, a former England player you know, before the game, at halftime, afterwards, blah blah blah. It's a bit, but it was a real good laugh. But the Iceland game was was done very quickly. It came around quick, so they just booked me. So I was all on my own, which I didn't really fancy, and I felt that the punters were getting shortchanged a little bit. <laughs> so 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 I did a little d d a talk before the game, and it was all going really well actually. And and the the plan was to to obviously you know celebrate afterwards together. And as soon as that final whistle went, I mean, it, it started off well because we led. Then they equalised very quickly from a long throw. Then we had Joe Hart throwing another goal in like he had done earlier in the tournament. 2-1. You thought, well, England will come back. And at half-time, all of the talk was, we'll come back. We, it can't be as bad again. And it got worse, didn't it? It got great. Every five, ten minutes that passed, England got worse. They couldn't pass. They couldn't trap the ball. They, Hodgson was, was a deer in the headlights. Every player looked scared stiff. It was shocking. And at, and at the full-time whistle, the, the, the person in charge of the restaurant said, look, just a couple of minutes ago, he said, look, no one's going to want to hang around here. You can go if you like. There's, there's no post-match show. <laughs> and, it, and that is literally what happened. And, and, and like everybody just head down, trudged out into the streets of London, and it was miserable. I think it was the... And England have had a lot of lows in, in, in our lifetimes, but but I can't think of a, a big game where they played worse than that. Yeah, it was it was all set up for us, wasn't it? France in Paris in the in the in the next round, but just not good enough. It was awful. Mm. Seb, you know, let's let's treat the, the listeners as your therapists. Who <laughs> who do you want to share your horror with? So it's a little bit of a professional memory. That's why it's so harrowing. It was the semi-final between Germany and England at the European Under-21 Championships in 2017. It was the first tournament that I covered. I was working for the Evening Standard and sort of learning about print deadlines and mixed signs and all that kind of thing. And for that semi-final, despite both teams being based in Krakow, they sent us out to this to, to a place called Tishi. With all due respect to the residents of Tishi, who I'm sure are all absolutely lovely, not the funnest place in the world. And it was England-Germany, so obviously England lost on penalties after a very long night and about three or four different rewrites. And when we left the stadium, we made a little bit of a miscalculation about 
trains back and you know uh, our route back into Krakow. So with a quotes piece still to write, I had to mime out the need for a taxi to some very heavily armed Polish transport police who didn't speak any English. And it would have been about sort of eleven thirty at night by that point. And you know, it's like when you when you when you when you're working on a deadline and just how much adrenaline you have in your body and just you know that that terrible sort of fatigue slash nauseous feeling you have, <laughs> nauseous feeling you have. Eventually, managed to find a, a cab and the opportunity to pay ninety quid to get back to to Krakow. And I had to write my quotes piece in the back of the cab. Um, <laughs> And for someone that gets car sick at the best of times, that was, ah, oh, it was just, it was misery. And I, I, because England were out, I didn't really have anything left to do in Poland. So I was able to, I, I remember staying in my, my little, um, I don't know, sort of 25 quid a night hotel room. And I was ill for about three days afterwards. It was just, I mean, I, I love Poland and I, I have some, some very precious memories of it. And it was a wonderful experience and I, I learned an awful lot, but that was, that was just a, that was 36 hours of misery it was um <laughs> and so i, I, we, I it was actually a very good game 2-2 and yeah. uh england held on in typical english fashion and sort of somehow managed to get their way to penalties but then uh, fluffed their lines when it mattered yeah it was my first experience of just of of the nightmare journalism that can occur at tournaments and yeah, I haven't, haven't, haven't managed to watch that game back since. <laughs> mm, it, it sounds like a, a sort of a, a living anxiety dream, doesn't it, really? I, I don't know about you guys, but I often have those dreams where I've got a deadline I, that I know I'm not going to meet and it, I, it keeps running away from me and, you know, the phone doesn't work or my brain seizes up or something like that. And I, you know, I talked to, to, to sportsmen and you know, I, I spoke to Alistair Cook about it and he had this anxiety dream about just running through treacle and going nowhere and knowing that he's going to get run out. So I suppose it's different strokes, different folks. <laughs> One thing that struck me about the weekend, there was a David Beckham retrospective on BT Sport, which basically posed the question which is probably not an original one, but I'll ask it to you, Aid, if I could. Mm. Beckham, is he a clothes horse or a criminally underrated <laughs> footballer? Well, he's both, isn't he? Because he, he looks ever so good in, in all clothes, doesn't he, really? Still, annoyingly, for a man that's the same age as me. So, so yeah, he's both. I think it shouldn't be forgotten how good he was as a footballer. I, I really thought he was excellent. He's a peer. I, I knew him. As a, as a 12, 13-year-old, I played against him for Ridgeway Rovers. He was at Ridgeway. I was at Redbridge United, and we beat them, which was good. But I played alongside him for rep team in London and and for the England youth team. So, so I got to know him. He worked really hard. He got the most out of his ability. He's a really talented boy, small, skillful, technically superb. And then at 18, he shot up and became you know physically strong as well. But really... The secret to his success was was technique, and and that didn't all come naturally. He worked really, really, really hard, and I think he got the most out of his ability. And actually, given the distractions of his fame, and and obviously his relationship with with his wife, I think his career was was very, very successful. He, other people, less mentally strong people, would have let that get to them. I think, and would have distracted them to such an extent that they would have had a, a fairly rapid fall from grace. But but that didn't happen with Beckham. He stuck around and had a career that lasted over 20 years. He wasn't quick. He didn't have great twinkle toes. He hadn't quick, didn't have quick feet. But he had a brilliant right foot, excellent football brain, and a serious work ethic on the pitch as well. And that's why managers kept wanting him. That's why they picked him. And And I think he deserves a lot more credit for, for his footballing career than, than he probably gets. And yeah, I, I maybe I'm biased because cause I kind of know him. I lost touch with him a bit down the years, but but I think he was outstanding. I really do. Yeah. I suppose Beckham at the moment, is his is current guys, is a franchise holder in MLS. One of the most intriguing transfer suggestions that I saw in the last couple of days, Seb, Gareth Bale to America. I can't see how they'd be able to afford him unless Bale and, and his advisors take a long-term view about, yeah, well, this is how this could be the next 
manifestation of my career. What do you think? Gareth Bale to the MLS? I can almost hear Jonathan Barnett's reaction to that, Mike, and the idea that he might sort of step away from his Real Madrid contract before it ends. I don't know. I think it would be quite an interesting move. I still think Gareth Bale has something to offer European football. I accept fully that MLS has developed tremendously as a as a sporting entity. It's very entertaining to watch. I you know I, I enjoy it, but at the same time, Gareth Bale is still one of the top thirty or forty players in Europe, and it would be an awful shame if that were to be the, that would just to be his career. So Spurs. Real Madrid, and then off to America and out of sight. I don't, I understand the marketing aspect of it, but then Gareth Bale's never really struck me as someone that would be sold on that kind of mentality. He is, he is a, I mean, I, I know he's existed in similar climes, but he is about as different from David Beckham as a person as you could possibly get. He's an introverted character who wants to spend time with his family and on the golf course, and you know, both of those things are to be applauded. For him to be sold on the idea of Miami, I think it has to be a very different personality, Mike. Mm, I agree. Well, you know, let's sort of begin to pull the strands together, if we could. Thought for the day. Can I start with you, Seb? Anything you want to get off your chest? I've been really alarmed at what I've heard from football players over the last few days. Sergio Aguero, Glenn Murray, Joby Makinoff. I mean, that's quite a broad area, and they're all pretty much saying the same thing. They're worried about their health and the safety of their family. They don't want to be quarantined away from, in some instances, young children and wives and girlfriends. I just find it astonishing. I, I, I think, I think it epitomizes a point that we've been making again and again and again on this show is that the communication and the coherence between all the different bodies involved in this is just not good enough for players to feel that their only recourse is to, to not spill their guts in the press, but go to journalists and say, "Look, this isn't. I don't want this." That is a terrible indictment of how this process is being run. And I just, I want, I want people to start taking responsibility for this. I want to hear from people. I don't want rumours and Chinese whispers in the press. I want to hear from the Premier League. I want to hear from these chief executives at football clubs who are so very vocal about macro issues the rest of the time, who are happy to put their name to initiatives which could potentially change the fabric of the game. When it comes to this, when it comes to actually having a plan and a the ability to, to plot a responsible way forward, no one wants to take ownership. And I hate it. I hate what it says about the game. Yeah. Well, I'll... I'll jump in if you like. Now, I'm going to make no apologies for returning to a familiar theme, which is youth football. Bayern Munich are scrapping their under nine and under 10 teams. Now, I think that's a step towards sanity. But it wouldn't be allowed in England because of that wretched elite player performance plan. If we've forgotten... That was written by the big clubs for the big clubs. So basically, they can plunder and pillage lower down the scale with very little financial implication. There's also a race to the bottom going on here. I'll talk about Manchester City, not to, in any malicious way to try and call them out, but I fail to see the logic of their so-called elite under five program, under five. It's split into three ability levels. Now, what I want to happen is for EPPP to be scrapped and kids to be allowed to be kids. Now, I know that's something you also feel strongly about. Ace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I echo your thought for the day, really, on, on this. Look, I've been there. I, it's too young. It's too young. I've also spent a fair bit of time at the Hale End Academy, on and off. And a lot of the work there is brilliant. It really is. And EPPP has got, definitely got faults that I, I share your, your thoughts on them. But in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's raised standards as well. I think, I think there's a lot of good work that goes on in in academies but for me you don't need to be getting the children to play exclusively for football clubs until they're at least 11 years of age at least 11 up until that point it gets very serious very early on in these kids lives and I don't I'm not very comfortable with it I think we should let let the children just play for that play with their mates up until they're 11 and maybe if if the clubs want to get training sessions once once a week, maybe twice a week, 
the other training session in conjunction with what they're doing, playing with their schools and whatnot on Sunday leagues at nine or ten. I don't have an issue with that. But we shouldn't be scouting five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. It's ridiculous. It's such a impressionable age, and these kids, they're turning these kids into mini adults, and and it's unnecessary. And and the, the amount of kids that that suddenly start dreaming of becoming professional footballers that then get dispensed with at the end of every year is heartbreaking and and unnecessary. So Bayern Munich, I hope that they're paving the way for a, for a change here. We don't need serious football until at least the under 11s. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Let's just let them play. So thanks to you for joining us. And please... Stay safe out there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.